Portage Health Foundation is proud to introduce you to Do Good Volunteer of the Month, Angie Van Tassel. Angie has made quite a mark in Michigan's copper country since moving here in the 1980s. She initiated a high school completion program for pregnant and parenting teens, started support groups for women with cancer, provided rides for little brothers, friends of the elderly, and is a board member with UP Kids. She also helped build the new pickleball courts in Hancock. If you know an incredible volunteer like Angie, go to dogoodcc.org and nominate them to be recognized as the next Do Good in the Copper Country Volunteer of the Month. Welcome back to segment two of Copper Country Today. I'm Todd Van Dyke. We are brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation at phfgive.org. Ham radio lessons begin next weekend. If you've ever been interested in getting involved in amateur radio, and there are many people who accuse me of being involved in amateur radio because I'm kind of an amateur, but if you'd like to get involved in real amateur radio, this is an opportunity for you to take the classes, learn how it works, get the certifications that you need. If you'd like to know more about all of this, well then stay tuned because I have Don Lafreniere here and his son Simon uh, here as well and we're going to talk about uh, ham radio. They are both involved with the Keweenaw County Repeater Association and the Copper Country Radio Amateurs Association. So Don, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. And Simon, welcome. Hello. Simon is how old? Um, 10. And you are a ham radio operator. Yeah. The youngest in the UP as far as we know. So uh, we'll talk to you in a few minutes about why you decided to do that and uh, how you got into it. But first of all, uh, Don, uh, let's, for those who really aren't familiar what we're talking about, explain what ham radio is. Sure. So ham radio, we also call it amateur radio. Um, it is a hobby that is uh, where people come together and they bring their interest in electronics and communications, uh, geography, uh, just getting to know other people. And it's a pretty active community around the world. There's about uh, 400,000 amateur radio operators in the United States and millions across the, the world and who just have an interest in, in talking, using radio communications, technology, computers, to talk to different people, uh, to send information. Uh, it's really kind of a big, diverse hobby with lots of things. It's, I have friends who've been involved in it for many years, and they talk with people all over the world. Absolutely. I talked to uh, people in like sub-Saharan Africa, down in South America. The other day I was talking to somebody in Alaska, just like they were sitting right in the room here with me. There are parts of the world where this is still an essential day-to-day -day type of communication. Absolutely. It's used in, in you know, parts of the developing world, especially, you know, where, where uh, technologies aren't as well developed and, and amateur radio is a way in which, you know, governments communicate with their, with their people, um, people communicate you know, to, to other parts of the world. Yeah, um, some remote areas, Australia yeah. Uh, yeah, comes yeah. to mind, the outback. There are a lot of areas yeah. that don't have wired communications in, but you can get your message in and out using ham radio. Absolutely. What kind of equipment do you need to get started in ham radio? You actually don't need very much. You can do start as simple as a small, what we often think of as like, walk, they look like a walkie-talkie. It's a little more advanced than that, but a handheld radio. Um and um, a small antenna that could mount on the side of your car or with a magnet even on the roof. Um, uh, to talk uh, longer distances, you can do it with a piece of copper wire hung up across a couple trees. Because I know people who do it that way, and I know people who have some very elaborate setups. Yeah, and that's certainly an option. And as you grow, just like any hobby, it, you can put <laughs> as, money at, as much money at it as you want, um, but it's not necessary to get started. Uh, but as you grow and you mature in the hobby, th yeah, there's certainly opportunities for you to build elaborate. 
but you do have to have some knowledge going in and you do have to pass some tests and get a government license to do this uh, legally. So talk to me about the classes that are going to be coming up starting next weekend. Sure, absolutely. So you do need a license from the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. We know them um, well here. I, I suspected. Um, it's uh, it's not a challenging test, um, but you do need to learn some fundamentals of sort of how radio works, um, some basic understanding of how electronics and, and electricity operates, and there's some rules that you need to learn. Um, and so we have a, a course that we've been offering. I think this is now our fourth or fifth year. Um, I serve as the instructor and we meet. Uh, first course is going to be on the 28th of this month um, up at the Franklin Township Hall, which is right on US 41, right at the top of Quincy Hill there um, from 9 a.m. until noon. And uh, it's for three weekends. So we start on the 28th. We'll do it again on the 4th and on the 11th. And you do have to attend all three? You do have to okay. attend all three. Um, it uh, costs $25. Um, and that includes your fee that goes to the FCC to pay for the license. And it also includes lunch. So we feed you lunch on the third day. Um, you take the test uh, at the end of the third day. Um, it's a 35-question test, multiple choice. And we feed you lunch and you take the test. And then you become an amateur radio operator. And, and what kind of cost are you looking at if somebody's going to buy the basic entry-level gear? Oh, a radio is about $100. Um, and really, that's... That you could start there, and that okay. would get you on the air. Yep. And once you get your license, then you have call letters. You do. It, we call them call signs, just like the radio station here has a call sign. Um, and you get to uh, – things have changed over the years. You actually get to choose your call sign now, which is kind of fun. So you can choose call letters that have your initials or or some other important uh, components of, of, of your identity. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're gesturing here. Simon, tell us what's up. Well, I was suggesting that my dad could share his call sign. Mine is KE8TXD. And yep, yours? mine is W8PSP. So how do I reach you if I'm going to go to my unit and turn it on and I want to talk to Simon, for example? Simon, how do I reach out to you? Well, uh, you would say, KE8TXD, this is your call sign. Okay, we'll, we'll call me KTODD, okay. KTOD. So, so, so I would be looking, and, and if you were listening, obviously you yeah. could answer. If you're not listening, I've got no hope, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And this, this is not like a cell phone that rings. Yeah. On the other side, uh, it is dependent on somebody being awake and alert and ready to respond on the other end. That's right. Years ago, you had to learn Morse code to do this. Right, you did. Uh, when I learned, uh, I became an amateur radio operator in 1994, and you needed to learn to do Morse code at 12 words a minute. Um, that's no longer no longer a requirement. There are still some amateurs who do Morse code, but you don't need to learn Morse code to do the exam. Well, and one of the reasons for that was that ham radio operators serve a very important role in cases of emergency. And there was back in those days the thought that, well, maybe the signal would not be sufficient to carry voice, but it takes less signal to carry Morse. And so everybody had to know Morse code. That kept a lot of people out of ham. Yeah, it absolutely did. And we saw a big uh, growth in the hobby in the 1990s and late 1990s, 2000s when they removed that requirement. Um, and and really, I think it helped the, the hobby grow in a big way. Yeah, and it's not really a concern anymore in terms of, uh, of, of the viability of getting messages through. No, because we actually have a lot more technologies than we did back then. Yeah. Uh, amateur radio operators have satellites up in space that we can bounce our signals off of just 
similar to um, you know other satellite technology. Wait a minute, you can bounce a signal off a satellite? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can stand right here in the parking lot of the I radio station. I can't bounce a signal off a satellite. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> neat, and and their cubes are about the size of a, of a Kleenex box. So it's and they're floating around in space, and you can talk on them. Oh my word! So it, yeah, but so if you were have that old thought in mind that you had to learn Morse code to become a, a ham radio operator. That's been out the window for a long, long time. I, I learned a little bit of code in the Boy Scouts sure. and know how daunting it was to learn it. And even once you learned it, how to try to keep fresh at it yeah. was very, very challenging. So that's, uh, that's, that's an issue we don't have to worry about anymore. Let's talk, uh, Don, about some of the things that your organizations do, both the Keweenaw County Repeater Association and the Copper Country Radio Amateur Association. I've alluded to uh, some things. You stand ready, basically. If we were to suffer an emergency in which local communications were to be cut out, you're our backup. That's right. And that's why we're licensed by the FCC. So they understand that we have a basic level of training and understanding of how to uh, have radio equipment that's ready and to be deployed. And so it is a volunteer system, so you're not required to do this. But in the spirit of what amateur radio is about, we all are prepared to have equipment ready to deploy when uh, the kind of situations you just, just described. And um, I think back to the, uh, I used to live out east uh, during the ice storms in 1999, um, and that knocked out electricity uh, for most of the east coast of the United States. And uh, it was amateur radio operators who were working with the Red Cross, uh, working with uh, military reservists, working with other like social service organizations to get relief out to, to you know elderly folks who were stuck at home in the storm, people who were sheltering in high schools, for example, um, for heat and warmth and getting food distributed and things like that. Yeah, some of the hurricanes and floods that we've seen in the southern portion of the United States over the last few years. Power gets wiped out widely, cell communications go down, everything's pretty much off-grid except for ham radio operators and... uh, Many of them, I know, keep generators. That's right. Yep, we keep generators, batteries, uh, solar um, systems. Yeah, we keep all of that at the ready, so we're available to help. And you show up at a lot of our local events. We do. We we are a big part of uh, Copper Dog. Um, I see you guys there every year yep. doing, yeah. doing the announcing. You come out for Copper Dog, and what what do you do for Copper Dog and and some of these other? other things that you're involved in. Yeah, so uh, for Copper Dog, for example, we um, are there at each of the crossings where the uh, dog teams are crossing the highways or other roads, and we are uh, sending in uh, reports of any injured dogs to the veterinary team. We're keeping track of the number of dogs on the sleds and the timing of those dogs and reporting back to race officials so they know the locations of the different dog sleds along the the, the route. And we actually, the information that the public sees up on Facebook and on uh, the Copper Dog website is actually coming from the radio amateurs who are inputting that uh, and putting it online in real time. So that's how we sort of keep track of the status of the race as it goes along. And I use that information at the finish. Okay. Because at the finish, I'm doing the announcing, and we're watching all of that to see who's out on the course and where they are and what their estimated time of arrival is going to be, who might be left on the course yet uh, when we get down to one or two stragglers, um, you know, the, the various checkpoints and the times of folks. So it's something that is extremely valuable just from my end as an announcer, and I appreciate all that you do, but it's yeah. also a safety factor. Yeah, it is. We're, we're there to help relay emergencies information when people are, are injured, you know, when dogs are injured, um, when, uh, you know, 
making sure that we've got uh, law enforcement, for example, to close the road down, uh, keeping all those kinds of components organized, um, making sure we can dispatch uh, veterinary teams, race officials, um, whatever resources may be needed. And what kind of equipment do you use for that? Is it just these portable uh, units that you've talked about before? Yeah, you can use a small uh, portable unit, or uh, many of us have a, of a slightly uh, more robust unit that's installed in our vehicles. But okay. it's, it's, it's still pretty modest in cost and, and easy to operate. Because I know people who have actually taken old 1,000-watt AM radio transmitters and revamped them for ham radio operation. I believe they can talk to people on Jupiter and Saturn with that much <laughs> yeah, power. I think so. I think so. I think so. Uh, and you, you know, you're much into this. I assume you have a, a relatively sophisticated setup at home. I do. Um, I, I've been an amateur radio operator for, you know, 26 or 7 years, something like that. So, you know, I've matured in the hobby of a pretty big setup. and uh, But it's fun, you know. For me, I think what really inspired me to do this was the ability to talk into a microphone, just like I am to you here, um, but be talking with someone anywhere else in the world and to learn about their culture, to learn about, you know, what kinds of things they do with their family, their their communities, and, and you never know who you're going to reach on any given day. And to me, that's just, it's, even though we have computers and we have the internet, you can't just reach out and find someone in an exotic part of the world, um, but you can with an amateur radio operator. Yeah, it's, it's potluck. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically what it is. Hello, are you out there? Uh, I suppose some people will remember the CB radio craze sure. from a number of years ago. Obviously, they still exist. That's a much more limited, close-in version of this. Yeah. But this is, this is something that can be done internationally uh, around the world. Absolutely. And it's not just voice either. Um, you know, one of my uh, newer uh, sort of obsessions is to actually send small, what they look almost like text messages, from computer to computer over the radio. And so you can actually have, you know, those types of interactions or you can send photographs or video really? uh, over the radio. Um, so there's lots of different ways you can do this. And All sorts of Simon things. was on my way over here talking to me about uh, weather balloons. And do you want to tell a little bit about that? Yeah, what's, what weather balloons? Well, you could attach ham radio equipment to a weather balloon and send it up. And it could act as a repeater, so like the satellites in space. And it could also do a bunch of other stuff. You could track it, like my older brother Peter, he did that once at a ham radio camp. So there are all sorts of things you can do. What got you into this, other than your dad's interest? What made it of interest to you, Simon? Well, of course my dad inspired me a bunch, and the fact that you could basically just call, and in a few minutes you can find somebody to talk to, and if you have a big setup, you can talk to basically anybody who has one. In fact, you can talk to the ISS if they're above you. Yeah, it, this is... Do you ever wind up talking to somebody in a part of the world that maybe you shouldn't be talking to? Uh, are there people in Ukraine who are communicating this way, for example? Uh, people in, in, in Russia? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as far as people not to talk to, not really. There's only a few places in the world we shouldn't be talking to, like North Korea in particular and, and Libya. But I suspect um, that there are places on the other side where the government would not want these people right. talking to you. Right. And that's why we don't usually hear them. So, but, <laughs> um, but like Ukraine, absolutely, when the war first started, we were passing a lot of what we call traffic, which is basically emergency communications from uh, mostly um, 
organizations that were there helping with relief to help uh, the large amount of migrants who were moving, trying to get out of uh, Ukraine right at the beginning of the war. And we were passing a lot of sort of health and welfare kind of messages. So okay. someone would have a relative here in the United States and wanted to be able to say, I'm safe. I made it across the border to Poland. And amateur radio operators were sending those messages from Polish amateur radio operators were sending them to uh, American operators who were then getting a hold of their friends and loved ones here. Yeah, you do act as a go-between in situations like this. Yes, absolutely. So I'm talking with uh, Don Lafreniere and his son Simon, who are involved in ham radio, both the uh, Keweenaw County uh, Repeaters Association and the Copper Country Radio Amateurs Association. The class is coming up, and uh, you obviously, Simon, have passed this class. How tough was it? It was not that hard. If you didn't pay attention, it probably could be pretty hard. And, uh, yeah, just pay attention and you should be able to pass pretty easily. Because there are some people who are really intimidated by taking classes and particularly by tests. Was the test really stressful? Not really. In fact, I think it was less stressful than most. Okay, so compare it to something you'd get in school. Well, compared to the exam I took today, well, actually, today's exam was really easy. Yesterday's exam. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what was yesterday's exam in? Uh, it was history and uh, math. And it, like, it was probably easier. Okay. Fact, definitely easier. Okay, so you would say to somebody who might be a little bit nervous about taking the coursework and taking the test that it's something that they should try and go ahead and do and be feel, feel okay with it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, one thing that we emphasize in the course is we give a hands-on experience. The whole purpose of the test is to make you prepared to go off and use a radio. And so we will have radios there. We'll have other amateur radio operators and ham radio operators there to show you how they work and uh, how uh, you can use it in different ways. Like I said, for digital computer-based things, voice, um, satellites, like uh, we were talking about all different ways you can use it so that it's not just theoretical, but you actually see the things that we're teaching in the course and how you actually apply it to using a radio. We talked about Copper Dog. I know there are other events that your groups are involved in providing communications. What other events do you support? Yeah, you know, we support the canal run. Um, we do the treat street that happens in downtown Houghton. Lots, um, of, lo- lots of parades we help with. There's like crossing guards sort of. And there's a whole network of us with little walkie-talkie-like things like my dad was talking about. Just making sure that everybody's staying safe in the plates and stuff. Yeah, it's one of those things that's very important, and hopefully you're not really needed. But boy, when you are, that's right. It's good to have someone on the spot if somebody's injured, uh, somebody has a problem in the canal run or something like that. Uh, word can be transmitted very quickly. That's right. Yep, absolutely. There has been a lot of change in government policy towards our side of the radio business over the years. Um, They, uh, really not so much radio, television. They came in and took a whole bunch of bandwidth away from television and turned it over to cell phone service and things of that nature. Um, The bandwidth that you use for ham radio, is that safe at this point? Is anybody making noises? No, not really. Um, We 
uh, have a lot of bandwidth, surprisingly, actually. Um, uh, oh, don't tell anybody. They'll I, come and take it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think they understand the essential needs of that service. And there's a, because it's so international, we have the International Telecommunications Union, which sort of uh, both regulates but promotes amateur radio around the world, um, The uh, what we call the uh, M- um Amateur Radio Relay League is our national sort of body that sort of uh, helps promote amateur radio here in the United States. And a lot, one thing to, to, that I think is really interesting about this hobby is that a lot of the technologies that everybody has in their, in their pocket right now, if you think about the cell phone in your pocket, most of that technology was developed by an amateur radio operator at some point in the past. So I was talking about texting yeah. and SMS messaging yeah. was an amateur radio technology developed in the 1980s. Um, the, the, a lot of the radio, the way the radio works and your phone, your cell phone is a radio. Yeah. Um, it, uh, it is using technologies that amateur radios operators developed as, a hob- as hobbies and that eventually became commercialized. Um, and so um, I think. I think inherently people understand the value of having a space for people to experiment and and try new things, and that promotes innovation, and then we all get the benefit. How far can you go with that? Because you are licensed, you are regulated. Well, I mean, oh, go ahead, Sarah. Um, go ahead. Sarah. One thing about your phone is you can get an app called uh, Echolink. Well, basically, it turns your phone into a rubber ducky. What's a rubber ducky? <laughs> yeah, Ted, now you've got to explain things. Because <laughs> like, what is a rubber ducky? <laughs> I missed that in broadcast school, I'm here to tell you. <laughs> what is a rubber ducky, Simon? So a rubber ducky is sort of like a walkie-talkie for amateur radio operators. Okay, that, and that's, that's the term. They call it a rubber ducky. What can you do with the rubber ducky? You can do a lot of stuff if you know how to use it. If, can you sink it in the tub? Uh... Nah. We probably wouldn't recommend well, that. Maybe a few of them could be waterproof, but... So what would you do on Echolink? Well, well you could uh, log in to the... What's the word? The net? Yeah, the net, to, which is like a... Uh, it's a meeting that we have every night at... Every Friday two, at 9 o'clock. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was 9. And we... Basically, it's like a test run for when, like, the Father Day flood happens. Okay, so, so you, you, you have people, you actually kind of do dry runs and, yeah. and have a group of people that gets together on a regular basis just to make sure they're ready and all their equipment works and all the procedures are in place? Yeah. Exactly, and Simon's one of our local net control operators, so once a month he actually runs that net and serves as basically the the coordinator for all the amateur radio operators in our region. Yeah, we were fortunate with the Father's Day flood that it was, even though the damage was severe in places, it was relatively isolated. So our major communication systems remained intact. That's right. Were you able to play a role in the Father's Day flood? No, not really. We were deployed. We were available to the uh, uh, county emergency manager um, uh, who was, uh, you know, basically came up with the emergency plan to respond to um, the uh, Father's Day flood. But again, like you said, we didn't have communication loss, thankfully. And and so we were there and ready and and, uh, kind of ready to go, but we didn't actually... Yeah, and we were, I think in some cases, probably about that close to it where we would have needed your network and your people and your expertise. And uh, fortunately, we did not. But it was amazing how many people called me here at the radio station because there were people from other parts of the country who would call in here 
and ask what help we would need. And they said, one of the first questions was, do you have communications? Yeah. Yes, fortunately we have communication. Do you have power? Yes, fortunately we have power. But uh, you know, you look at some of those hurricanes that have come through the southern portion of the United States over the last few years. Some of those really severe ones, the places have been without communications, without power for days and for weeks. And in many cases, it's ham radio operators who have stepped in and filled the gap. Absolutely. Yep. We saw a lot of that happen. You know, I think of Hurricane Katrina in particular. I mean, there were amateur radio operators uh, who obviously were impacted by the disaster themselves and many others came in from neighboring states to come and help with all the relief efforts that were going on and and we're helping out uh, it's kind of a rotation of people that would come in for for months in fact helping out uh, with rescue operations and rebuilding it doesn't just happen right at the at the uh you know the point of the disaster but often there's and one thing i guess to emphasize is that people who seem to be attracted to amateur radio op- Oper, uh, operating have other skills that that they bring with them that that uh, are of interest. So one group that we work with quite a bit is Superior Search and Rescue. Oh yes. And so people who have skills in in uh, navigation and and uh, uh, searching for lost pe- uh, people uh, also um, get their amateur radio operators license to help with communications during those periods of time. Well, I think it's really nice when you can do something that you enjoy, but also have it ready to help people in an emergency. That's a win-win. It's nice to have a hobby that gives back. Yeah, All you right. can say that. Uh, do, go ahead, Simon. We're just about to wrap up here. So. I was just agreeing with that. Okay. Well, uh, Simon Lafreniere and Don Lafreniere, thank you for coming in. Again, the uh, the training begins on January 28th, continues February 4th and February 11th, 9 o'clock until noon each day. We have details about it posted on our Report.com community calendar. So you can go there and you can get Don's email address from there. If you'd like to sign up, just give Don an email and I'm sure that there'll be space for you. Absolutely. Everyone's welcome. All right, thank you both Don and Simon for coming in on Copper Country Today. Thanks for having us.